Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. Today, I am joined by Shelby Robbins. Shelby is the co-founder and CEO of Antelope Recovery, an online teen intensive outpatient program in Colorado. Shelby has put together a compassionate and fast growth team whose mission is redesigning teen mental health care to increase access and improve clinical quality of care. Her mission is to make behavioral health care healthier. Antelope Recovery is an organization that has a positive and transformative effect on the field of teen behavioral health and ultimately the entire healthcare ecosystem. Additionally, I'll be donating to and raising awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice with each and every episode. In this episode, the organization is called To Write Love on Her Arms. Shelby talks a little bit about what To Write Love on Her Arms does and why it's important to her. And I will be donating. So please join me in donating. The link is in the show notes as always. And in this conversation with Shelby, we talk mostly about antelope recovery and why teen mental health is so important to her. One of the things I most appreciate about Shelby's approach to this work is that she is more experimental in nature than a lot of other people that have therapy and coaching backgrounds. And one of the things that Shelby points to in this conversation is that in some ways, it's really the wild, wild west in the coaching world, and there aren't that many regulations and rules, and there are lots of challenges that come with that. But Shelby has a kind of renegade innovator approach, and while she does it with a lot of safety, she's experimental and is willing to try things that are going to be supportive of teens and their mental health. One of the things that I really love in her experimental approach is that she uses with other facilitators and in her own facilitation, the healing power of nature to help teens and being outdoors and being around animals, hence antelope, can be really healing and a reminder of the fact that humans are a part of nature. We are not separate from nature. Another element of Shelby's work that I really admire is that she, like many other guests that I've had on the show, she's very interdisciplinary and uses a lot of different life experiences that she has been through and modalities that inform the way that she sees the world and that she can provide real support for the teens that are coming to antelope recovery. This feels like as timely a subject matter as any. The teen mental health is a real challenge in our society and it is exacerbated by the different technological challenges and we're being confronted with climate change and rapidly changing environment on so many different levels. So what Shelby is doing is really important and I'm a proud supporter of the work that she does. I'm going to let her take it from here. We have a really wide ranging and interesting conversation and Shelby will 
go into great detail about why she is fit to be doing this work and why it's so important to her. So I'll let her take it from here. And with all of that said, let's settle in, take a deep breath. And enjoy what Shelby has for us today. Hi, Shelby. Welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. Hi, Mike. Really happy to be here with you. I'm really grateful to have you on. And before, right before we hit record, we were saying that yesterday I had the great privilege of interviewing your friend, Jen Riley, on my show. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited to get to talk more about the mental health of children and teens. And before we go there, actually, I would love to get to know more about you. And the way that I start every interview is by asking, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? Great. I love that question. And yeah, just one more shout out for Jen. I can't say it enough how much I love her work and I'm really glad you're able to, to talk with her. But um, yeah, so I grew up in the suburbs of Colorado and uh, my dinner table was very loud. I have two younger sisters. The youngest one was seven years younger than me. So we're fairly spread out. And we were, we had a blast at dinner. <laughs> my, um, usually my mom cooked dinner every night. My dad, my parents were fairly traditional. So my dad worked all day. My mom stayed at home until kind of later in, into my teen years. And we would have usually some sort of spaghetti or <laughs> like, kind of out of the box food and it was it was great and we all ate dinner together every night growing up my sisters and i had a big problem where we'd like to sing during dinner so my parents you know they had all sorts of creative rules to actually like tie us down to the table and force us to <laughs> actually feed ourselves so no singing at the dinner table was a really big big rule for us <laughs> You know, no giggling. Like if one of us would giggle, the other ones would giggle and it would spiral out into like laughing fits. Or I think someone threw up at some point from like over giggling. Wow. But yeah, it was great. It was a great like house of girls. And um, it was a lot of fun uh, uh -huh. growing up, growing up that way. Yeah. It sounds like if not you, your family was loud and like to have a good time. And I'm curious, mm -hmm. I mean, one of my come froms with a question like this is I want to know mm -hmm. what your family dynamic was like and, and what you personally were like. So how would you describe how, what you were yeah. like as a child? Great. Yeah, well, I guess one, so one context piece, my, I grew up, so I was born in 93. And I think around 2008, during the 2008 housing crisis. I was 13, 14. That really affected my parents and my whole family. So dinner dramatically changed for me as a teen. We fell into financial crisis. My parents got divorced. They handled that divorce and, you know, it was really challenging for them. And so there's kind of before that time period and after. So if, if I keep diving into before that time period, yeah, the family dynamics were, were interesting. My parents met when they were 15. They were high school sweethearts. They eloped in Vegas when they were 21. And yeah, they were very, 
they really valued like savoring and enjoying life and really kind of drinking up all that life had to offer. I think um, that is both very beautiful, but there's also a shadow side to that as well, where they think had a really hard time knowing how to digest and, and be with uncomfortable experiences. So, you know, I don't know how many of you listeners or if you, Mike, are into the Enneagram, but I'd say they're kind of a classic Enneagram seven couple. <laughs> they were just out. Just quickly what that is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Enneagram is a kind of pop psychology personality map. So it tracks what are different personality fixations and it's great. It's, I, I think it's really helpful, but it's partial like all, like all maps. So usually there's kind of a, like the shadow side of each type on the Enneagram and then like a strength of each type. So, yeah. So my, my parents were, you know, fit into that kind of personality type and yeah, I, you know, for me, I'm the oldest daughter of three, and I, I fit the kind of classic kind of older daughter type. I was the rule follower. I was the default babysitter, um, the co-parent, <laughs> um, and it was my job to kind of keep, keep my sisters in line, um, and my sisters were, uh, you know, did, did a great job of breaking me out of my, out of my comfort zone, um, <laughs> all the time. So it's, it's kind of a fun dynamic, but we were really close. We were, the three of us were extremely close and that's something I'm, I'm really grateful for. We're still really close to this day. And after 2008, after my parents divorced and, you know, our family had multiple kind of mental health crises happen. Uh, my sisters and I really were able to have a lot of camaraderie through that. And yeah, that was, I think I, I value that a lot. It's, and it feels nice to share about it. I don't think I get to appreciate them with other people too often. So really glad you asked. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. In <laughs> the preparation for this conversation one of the mm -hmm. one of the screening questions I ask is what's one question you'd love to be asked and and the question that you wrote is why are you interested in teen mental health and huh. your answer just now obviously gave a, a pretty big clue it sounds like in 2008 when you were 15 14 or 15 years old that's mm -hmm. when you started to be confronted with maybe some of the challenges that forced you to confront pain in, in ways that maybe you hadn't experienced before. And I would be curious to hear just how you would answer that question. There's probably a million and one different reasons, but uh, why are you interested mm -hmm. in teen mental health? Yeah, that's, that's great. I think I, <laughs> I answered that question a while ago, so it's nice to hear it come circle back around. <laughs> yeah, I, just out of respect for my family's privacy, I'm not going to share too much about them, but um, I can say the majority of us really struggled with some sort of mental health crisis during that time. During my teen years, really starting at the age of 13, it was like puberty and then bam, <laughs> here's, you know, not just my own struggles, but the, all the people around me started um, really struggling. But I think one of the mo more impactful kind of experiences I had, I fell in love at age 15 
with a guy named Chris. And we were together for a little over five years. And throughout our time dating, he developed a heroin addiction and ended up overdosing towards the end of our relationship. And I think that process is really what kind of drove it home for me of like, wow, there's, there was no help. There was nothing for us. You know, we were, you know, kind of lower middle class white people (laughs) in middle America. And there was just, there wasn't anything here. There were no resources. I remember, you know, him being in and out of jail and rehabs were $60,000. And, you know, we felt really alone. And I think as an adult, it's been really important for me to try to start building some infrastructure so that other, other kids don't have to have to go through that again. And I think for my parents and his parents as well, it was also very like a hopeless kind of experience for them of like, where do we go? And we have these kids. <laughs> and at the same time of having my kids going through crisis, I'm going through crisis. And, you know, that experience, talking to them as an adult, I think has, has also been really motivating and just enlightening for me. Mm-hmm. Did all that make sense? Did that answer that question? Yeah. 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 I, I'm also wondering, so on your, on your website, it, you have mm-hmm. written as follows. Although my professional qualifications are many, what makes me really qualified to work with adults and teens is my personal journey through several major life upheavals. And that yeah. is certainly one of them there. You've, you've already named two, actually. It's <laughs> someone that you were in love with, overdosed. And, and thank you for sharing that. I imagine that mm-hmm. it might be challenging to speak about. And your parents' divorce is a, another one. When you wrote that on your website, are there any other experiences that come to mind for you? (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, it's funny. I often kind of joke with the people closest to me that like any personal development I've had has has not been because of me. (laughs) It's it's been like an essential strategy in order to keep going. But yeah, there's but I've had, you know, in my 20s, I've had several big life upheavals. I I became really, really sick when I was 21. I ended up, you know, in an emergency room with sepsis, like an infection spreading through my whole body. And, you know, was, I remember like hearing the nurses talking, like, we don't know why this is happening, but she might not make it like this. It was a very kind of spontaneous and intense, like near death experience. And it took me over a year to get fully healthy again. So I think that was another just really transformational period for me of like, who am I? And who am I if I can't do anything? <laughs> who am I if I'm stuck in bed? And what does that mean? And, you know, I, I think before then, I, I was definitely in that kind of older daughter, like, I'm valuable if I'm useful kind of state. You know, I'm valuable if I can accomplish things or achieve things. So that that really got me out of like an achiever kind of identity place and all sorts of big identity openings and awakenings started happening for me after that. I got really involved and now I think of it almost as like a cult, but like an energy work, Reiki, new agey 
experience. I'm, I, you know, I moved to Boulder, Colorado, and you know, got really involved in what really is, what does it mean to be a human? What's the full range of human experience that I can access? And you know, without drugs, like what, what does, what does that mean? And, um, I would say that that was another big experience. And then, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of other, other big life events. I think the, the next like big event was, you know, I, in that, that part of my life after my boulder exploring (laughs) phase, I, um, you know, started getting really into workshop mode. I was taking workshop after workshop and got really interested in self-development. I built a coaching practice. I um, was seeing, you know, 30, 40 clients a week. My coaching practice blew up. It was awesome. (laughs) And I was like in full, like, bolder personal development guru mode and I was in a very stable relationship like my life seemed to be very put together I was really interested in systems and how do we really support people in creating change is really into practices and it was interesting I think I relate to it now almost like an apocalyptic life event where I went through a breakup coaching suddenly became kind of meaningless to me, I was like, what am I doing with these people? Like, does it even matter? Like, <laughs> like, what if they're kind of fine already? Like, <laughs> it, it was like this existential thing kind of blew up in my face. I, I remember having experiences like the, the sentences I was saying would suddenly fall apart while I was saying them. Like, things just started deconstructing for me. And in some ways, it was really beautiful, but it was also really hard. And at that point in time, I, you know, I quit my job, broke up with my partner. I was like, what do I do? <laughs> what do I do with this, this experience that's happening? Like, something is, is shifting for me here. And I think it took me eight to nine months before I realized, like, I actually want to work in teen mental health. If I I really broke down like what makes my life meaningful or what brings me like what can I say is really really true outside of all of these maps and all of this kind of subtle experience that I had been so excited about and interested in for so long I what really what I found was that service was what mattered to me most so I started working at an inpatient program with teens who are struggling and that really kicked off my whole interest in teen mental health and, you know, kind of got me on, on the track where I am now. But that was, I think, definitely a more abstract kind of life upheaval, but um, one that's, that matters <laughs> for me to share about. So, yeah. Well, before we get into antelope, which I definitely want to be spending a lot of time speaking about, because that's that's the work that you're doing now, and it's really, really important work. I'm I'm curious that in those upheavals or those moments of distress or those those moments where it felt like the ground maybe was coming out from underneath you, did you have you named that you were attending workshops and that you were you're really just immersing yourself in self development, personal development? But did you have mentors or teachers or, or people that you that supported you in those moments that helped you that helped you keep going 
Not necessarily, no. I So I think the first big, like, there were a lot of teachers and mentors that were really appropriate for me at that time. But then the second one I described, I know it was really kind of a solo experience. And it was clear to me the whole time that I was the only one who's going to be able to get myself through it. I think a lot of it was that I, I couldn't trust. It was like a lot, everything just started becoming really hollow. And I needed to get to a really silent, kind of empty space in order to let all the like dead wood to burn away or something so that I could really know what was what was real. And um, I, the only way I knew how to do that was to be alone. I also, <laughs> I think meditation is a big, that's been a big part of my life. I lived at a Zen, Zen monastery for three months. And that training I think was the most helpful for me in that period of time of like, I know how to sit still. And I'm just going to sit still through this, this like psychic event. And yeah, no workshop or teacher or book was really able to get me through that. It just, I just had to really get intimate with my reality. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. It's, it's going to yeah. strike a chord. It strikes chords in me. And I'm sure that the listeners is going to strike uh, several chords in them, each of the experiences mm -hmm. that you named and I would love to talk now about antelope and there's a lot of different directions that we can go with this. And you've of course already addressed why teen mental health is so important to you, but how would you describe what you're, what you're building at antelope recovery? Yeah, I'm just, just noticing how caffeinated I am and how much I'm enjoying getting to this talk. <laughs> and I'm a little insecure. Fun, like, I hope this is making sense. <laughs> It is. But it's it's making sense. And it's, it's been a wonderful okay. conversation so far. <laughs> Helpful feedback. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm so excited to talk about antelope. So what we are building is an online teen intensive outpatient program. So what is that? So intensive outpatient therapy is a very evidence-based kind of traditional approach to supporting teens who've been through a, a mental health crisis or a mental health emergency. So usually what that means, it's like, so if a teen um, has a suicide attempt, usually what will happen is their parents will take them to the emergency room. They'll be held under supervision, ideally up to 36 hours, just until they stabilize. And then what? <laughs> a lot of times emergency rooms just send people home and that's really scary. That's really scary for parents. That's like if you broke your arm and then you got it reset, but then you did no physical therapy afterwards or didn't get an x-ray again to make sure it was set right. So what intensive outpatient therapy really is about is how do we repair a psyche after there's been like a complete breakdown for a kid. So that is usually between five to 20 hours of pretty intensive work a week, typically four to 12 weeks of work. So some of the things we do in intensive outpatient therapy, we do one-on-one -on -one therapy, family therapy, group therapy, and 
different types of family education around what are the, what happened? Like, what's going on with your kid? How do you, what do you do about it? So it really is about like, if your house burned down, how do we build the house back up together brick by brick without sending your kid just back out into the world? So the cool thing about doing it online, which is what we're doing, is we can reach teens who would normally have to drive 45 minutes to three hours to get to therapy like this. And when you're needing sometimes five hours of therapy a day, driving three hours <laughs> there and back just isn't realistic. So a lot of kids who need this service aren't able to access it. That was one of the issues I had when I was growing up as a kid. We There's just no no resources around. So by doing it online, we can really start to solve that accessibility problem. That's such a big problem in mental health care. The other big thing we're doing at Antelope Recovery, there's two, two things we're doing. So a lot like inside of that structure, that kind of model of therapy, we are focusing on clinical data analysis and then increasing engagement. So the engagement problem with mental illness is huge. There's this funny thing that happens when you <laughs> have a mental illness where the illness itself is, is treatment resistant. So, and I, I use that language illness casually. I know there's condition might be more appropriate, but you know, if I have depression, that depression itself will create a treatment resistant narrative is, is how we describe it. So I'll feel so depressed I can't get out of bed to make it to therapy, or I'm so depressed I can't pick up the phone. Mm -hmm. Or um, with anxiety, it's really similar. I'm so anxious <laughs> I can't go talk to my therapist because the thought of that is terrifying. So, you know, that's true across the board with addiction, with mood disorders, schizophrenia, you know, it's it'll usually be a more like paranoid idea that the therapist is out to get you and trying to drug you against your will or something. So one of the struggles in mental illness recovery or recover, helping someone recover from this is how do we support people who generally don't want support? <laughs> and it's, it's definitely an awkward, maybe shadow side of the reality of severe mental illness recovery. And there's some really interesting studies on this that the National Institute of Mental Health has done where they've interviewed people after recovery when they were extremely resistant and they were like, thank God, thank God you guys <laughs> stood up for the part of me that was healthy and didn't listen to the part of me that was wanting to keep me sick. And that's a very controversial thing. But one of the great things we can do with online treatment is increase engagement. So, you know, we're not going to have a 12 year old boy with ADHD sitting in front of a screen for 20 hours. But what we can do is play Minecraft while on the phone with the therapist, or we can, you know, rural kids, have access to the outdoors. We can take them outside. So we've set up some really interesting scavenger hunts and like <laughs> outdoor activities that we can do that are that are a part of the program. So the engagement issue to me is really exciting. I think there's a lot of innovation there on how we can really gamify therapy and, and start to reduce stigma. And then the other other thing is is clinical data. So 90% of mental health programs don't keep track of data. They don't track their clients and they don't track if they're actually getting better after the program. 
And to me, that's a really big missed opportunity <laughs> of are your programs actually working? Are they causing more harm than good? Because it's, it's a lot easier to, to harm than to create good. And how can we improve upon programs if we don't, if we're not getting feedback about them? So we're, I'm, I'm really excited about that around creating feedback loops just throughout the entire program so that we can iterate and, you know, hopefully create treatment options that are less expensive and actually work better. So mm. that's antelope recovery in a nutshell. <laughs> that's what we're doing. Mm. I have a couple of follow-ups around that for sure, because I find that that approach is fascinating, but there's also something I want to underscore about what Antelope is doing and what I notice in a lot of different systems. And you named at one point in the conversation that you like to look at systems and analyze systems. Mm -hmm. And I, as you mentioned that a lot of times, if a teenager is suicidal, they might check into a hospital for say 36 hours and then be just be released back into the world with no sort of treatment plan or any plan in mind. It, it's, I'm just struck by how a lot of our systems, like the medical system, for example, might have a doctor tell a patient who's overweight, you just need to eat more vegetables, you need to exercise, and there's no actual plan in place or understanding of the human psychology that this person is not intentionally trying to fuck their life up. It's like they, there's perfectly good reasons that they're behaving this way. And so I'm, I'm just appreciating the way that you are, you're understanding systems and realizing that it's really, it's important that someone has a place to go when they're having suicidal ideation or depressed, but it's also really important that they have a place to go like Antelope where they can develop a skill set and be able to integrate that skill set. So I, I just wanted to underscore and name that. And uh, around the, I'm, I'm curious to learn a little bit more about the data and how you track it. And I'm also curious where the, like it's so innovative to be increasing engagement with things like Minecraft. And I guess I'd rather start there and then we can go to data <laughs> after. Great. With, with increasing engagement, did that, like, where did that in innovative idea come from that you could maybe, it would be more effective to treat someone if they're playing Minecraft or if they have access to outdoors, or there's probably any number of different ways too, but wh where did that idea come from? To be honest, I'm not sure. And I'm, I'm kind of racking my brain right now. Like where, where did that come from? I think in general, innovation in the mental health field has been really discouraged. It's generally been like, no, you need a university to try like create a study to try out, like, is this going to work for this client? Which in some ways is really great. Like, when you're dealing with early onset schizophrenia, that's terrifying. Like that can be absolutely terrifying to watch your 13 year old, you know, have really scary otherworldly experiences or start self-harming or begin having homicidal ideation. Like the, those kinds of experiences are terrifying for parents to go through generally speaking. So I, I think I understand <laughs> the strong <laughs> uh, stance in the mental health care field of like, we really need to be evidence-based and 
having worked with teenagers for a long time, I, um, on the ground with them, I also have understood that, you know, we have to meet these kids where they're at. And if you've ever talked to a teenager before, usually, <laughs> usually they find therapists very uninteresting. Um, and they do not want to talk to you and they will do whatever they can <laughs> to get out of this situation, whether it's insult you for hours at a time or, like, you know, come up with pranks or whatever they're, they're going to do. It's um, you have to be creative. And I think the best teen therapists know how to do that. So, um, you know, with tele teletherapy becoming a bigger deal, I'm imagining even in the coaching world, it's it's become a bigger deal just since COVID. But there's been an explosion of innovation in the entire field since 2020. So I know people are really um, pushing some of the, the laws around what actually can we innovate on and what we can't. So yeah, that's that's my best best go. And where where did where did that that all come from? So yeah. I, in general, I experience you to be someone who will swing for things that when the idea comes for you, you're, you'll just like go for it and put it together. And it, it seems like a quality that really serves you. And also, like you named just now, it, it isn't a quality that is super present in the mental health space. And it's not, it seems like it's a, a differentiating factor for you and, and the way that you provide the service. Thank you. Yeah, I um, appreciate that. And I think that it, that to me, that's really exciting of what happens if we bring startup tech nerds into mental health spaces. And in some ways, that's been really dangerous, like we've seen with other mental health companies like Cerebral. You know, I won't list off too many, but there's been some pretty big scandals going on <laughs> for, you know, maybe swinging too far to one side of being too open to new things without effectively testing them. But uh, I think there's there's a lot of opportunity to really, really help a lot of people. I think that's inspiring. Mm -hmm. So yeah. with regard to data, I'm yeah. interested here, what are it can be a little bit gooey as a field, right? Like improvement is happiness, for example, is not, it's a, a pretty tough trait and characteristic to quantify. But I, I would just be curious what you look for in clinical data and what are, what are some of the markers that would indicate progress in, in that? Great. Well, I wish our data person was here, Megan. She's amazing. She'd be able to answer that a little more thoroughly, but I can say that for any for anything you want to measure in mental health, there is likely already an assessment designed to measure it, and they're all free. You can look them up, and they're all evidence-backed. So if you want to measure wellness or well-being or happiness, there's different types of surveys and studies that will show you this is how, like these are best practices on how to measure these things. There's hundreds of thousands of them, which in some ways is great, but you're right in a field where there is no biomarker to measure. I think for me, there's a few things just plainly that indicate we've, we've had a success. The first one is, you know, I, I have a more of a harm reduction approach. So it's not necessarily like, you know, complete 
sobriety, but how, how can we reduce harm in the, in the system or with the kid? So I assume that most teenagers with any sort of mental health issue are going to relapse. It's just going to happen. What we can measure is next time they relapse, how are they relating to that relapse event? Do they tell someone? Do they reach out to a friend? Do they do something that they know helps with their experience? How long does it take from the time of the relapse to the actual next kind of support experience? And our hope hope is to shorten that gap. So that's an example of some types of things we measure. We also measure like, are they showing up to sessions on time? (laughs) Are they doing their homework in like that their therapist gives them. Um, when they are showing up for things like group, are they participating or are they are they really quiet and kind of withdrawn? So, you know, for each part of the program, there are different metrics we're looking at that give us a larger picture of what's actually happening for the teen. You know, therapists are... I'm gonna just make some broad generalizing sweeps, but they they tend to be really against data collection for therapy. There's a general sentiment amongst the f- practitioners in the field that therapy is more of an art than a science and any attempt to measure it is futile. And you know, if a kid answers a survey about their mood and they didn't eat breakfast, they're more likely to answer negatively than then they, like, they had a piece of toast. So what do we do with that? And the solution is to just have a really, really big audience to have data from. Like we need a massive pool of data in order to kind of rule out some of those things. But our our data scientists wrote a blog that's very technical. But if you're interested in this kind of thing or like to geek out on how, like, can we actually measure some parts of this? Is it worthwhile to or not? I think that blog is really helpful in just outlining what what's going on in the space. So I can find that and share that if if you are interested. Definitely, I'll, I'll make sure that we link to that and and any resource that we name in this conversation in in the show notes for sure. I have, of course, many curiosities, and I'm, I'm just sitting <laughs> with where where do I want to go? I guess one off, just right off the top of my head immediately is I, I'd be curious what some, and I know that everyone is coming from a different place and might be like it, whether it's mm-hmm. depression or schizophrenia or there could be any number of different reasons that they're coming to a therapist. But what would be some mm-hmm. of the homework assignments that you would be giving to one of a, a patient of yours. That's great. Yeah, so one of our main frameworks is, oh, I'm forgetting what it's called, but uh, it's about creating an ecology of support for the child and their environment. So really standard assignments we give are go out to coffee with a grandparent or with a teacher, go volunteer somewhere. We have an entire sequence of exercises that are animal-based, again, because we're going after or really here to support families living in rural and frontier counties. Usually they have access to a dog, a family dog. So figuring out, like, what are your dog's boundaries? (laughs) Do they have boundaries? (laughs) If you pull your dog's tail, what are they going to (laughs) do? You know, so... uh, 
that's a really great way for especially younger teens to start building out like relational skill sets, increasing empathy. But generally, we're, we're really focused on the kid not having to do therapy for the rest of their life. So we want to support them in building out natural resources in their kind of local ecosystem as much as we can. So most of their assignments are going to be around that. And then the kind of deeper shadow work facing their demons is is more in one-on-one therapy in a very like supervised kind of environment. Hmm. Yeah. I think many people who are listening will know what a harm reduction approach means, but but could you just say a little bit more about what what a harm reduction approach is? Yes, I can say that. So a harm reduction approach, I think I can best highlight just using examples. I don't have an easy definition just popping up, but it's essentially instead of just full abstinence from whatever the issue is, it's taking steps towards creating a healthier life. So I've had teenagers who are heroin addicts tell me that smoking weed at night helps them stop using heroin. From a harm reduction perspective, I think that's awesome. Like, great. (laughs) Let's have you smoke weed instead of do heroin tonight. And let's do, can we do that for the next four days? And if we can do that for four days, that's a huge win. From a more like abstinent perspective, that would be a big problem. That would be like, no, you're still using another substance to, you know, kind of escape whatever internal world you're in, you're still operating from an addictive kind of mindset and and we need to kind of cut that out cold turkey. And that's a pretty antiquated approach these days. Not a lot of programs adopt that modality and it can be challenging to, as a parent, especially if you have a more, um, we call it uh, like a drill sergeant-y kind of parenting type if, if you wanna have really strict boundaries with your kid. I think a harm reduction approach can be really challenging, but usually we find it is more more effective long term. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And something else I wanted to circle back on as well is that it sounds like w- with teens there might be, and I imagine if I went to, I didn't go to, I didn't start therapy until after I was a teenager, and and mm-hmm. I was a pretty compliant teenager, so I I don't think I would have been <laughs> mocking or harassing or name calling my therapist, but mm-hmm. I could, I could easily imagine <laughs> myself being really quiet and shutting down in some way. And I'm just, I'm curious, like what, what have, when have you noticed that there maybe is a shift that starts to happen for a teenager where it, instead of it being this in whatever way they might be resisting it, they are, they start to realize, Hmm, like there's, there's something here and I can, get better, I can improve in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. I I mean, on one hand, for every teen, that's going to be different. Mm-hmm. And there are general patterns. I think for us, it's our responsibility to deeply impact every teenager on their first session. And the best way we know how to do that is in groups. So group therapy is the most developmentally appropriate way I've seen to create like real transformation for kids, for teens in in this age group. I think individual therapy can be really challenging for most teenagers. It's kind of intimidating. They don't know what to say. 
and uh, it doesn't have the same kind of punch to it as group. So we try to get them in group as fast as possible. And we have, you know, there are a few kind of ingredients that allow us to make that impact. I think the first thing is it's up to the facilitator to model to the team that no matter what the team does, that they have like unconditional value. We might lose respect for them. (laughs) We might not want to be around them, but that doesn't mean they aren't inherently valuable as humans. So the teen facilitators that we have are really good at that. And so no matter what a teen is coming into the space with, it's it's their job to model that that's, you know, part of the human experience. And there's going to be hundreds of other people they're going to meet in their life <laughs> that are going to be doing the same thing. And that's okay. And I think that alone is is usually when kids start getting really excited and actually wanting to come. I think the goal is to get them and to enjoy the group experience and to want to be there. Could you share, it doesn't have to be specific because I I know Mm -hmm. that there's, we want this to be private and there's no names that you need to name or anything like that, but could you share Mm -hmm. what might be possible in a group setting and what are some of the, what's a a share or maybe a story that you have where you could you could see that there was an opening up and there's there's just is something incredibly healing about being seen in a group but it does take that willingness to take that first step so i'd just be curious Mm -hmm. to hear if any stories come to mind or and anything at all about that you'd have to say about groups i uh was just in a a group last week that was an initial group it was the first group for all the teens in the group. And the first group's always really hard, just logistically for us. It's like, I'm getting phone calls from parents. (laughs) We had one child forget to eat and he had diabetes and then went into shock and had to go to the emergency room because he's so anxious about coming to group. We had another kid (laughs) just, you know, try to throw a chair through the window, like just completely like, don't make me do this. Like, You know, so leading up to the first group, there's always the drama of, you know, fear of going into a new environment. And I can relate to that even as an adult. I know if I'm about to do something that's going to really transform my life or really change me, there's all sorts of ways I'll kind of sabotage myself from having, having that experience. So, you know, we, I think that's, it's very understandable that that happens, but I think one of the first things we, there's, there were two moments in that group I want to highlight. I think the first is our group facilitator started the group by sharing why he loved group. And he shared just a very vulnerable story about his first group and how much he hated group, but how as a teen, he realized if he ever wanted to be happy, like he had to do this. And that even as an adult, he's like, yep, and I'm really anxious right now. I don't really want to be here right now, but I know group, you know, helps me. And this is what I got to do in order to stay sober. And immediately all the kids just developed at least a baseline kind of curiosity of like, oh, here's an adult who's treating me like an adult, who's telling me who they are and sharing in a way that's sharing from a, a place of depth 
that is abnormal, that is not how people from their life or where people in their normal day-to-day life are generally speaking to them from. And I think that in and of itself is really exciting and enticing for a teenager. Teenagers tend to be very angsty, which we enjoy kind of laughing at them about. But <laughs> I think if you can meet that angst with with like a genuine kind of reveal, that angst turns into like really intelligent emotional curiosity. So we try to capitalize on that right away. And then the next thing we do is have each kid go around and say what they're struggling with and what their goals are. So even if they don't want to be there, they have to come up with a goal. And we get really curious about each kid and ask them questions about their goals. And it creates kind of an immediate experience of getting to be deeply seen in front of their peers and not be rejected. And I think those two things just are kind of the one-two punch of <laughs> like, okay, this, this is actually, this is real, this is happening, and I'm going to be here. And, you know, we had a kid share something like, well, I don't really have any goals. Like, I don't really care that I'm here and I'm here because my parents like want me to be different. And we might ask questions like, how do you feel that your parents want you to be different? And they're like, well, it's kind of annoying, but I guess I understand it, you know, and it just, we can help them kind of drop in and just through being curious. So, you know, those, the, I think those little, little things are really what creates the whole kind of experience. Yeah. And yeah. especially with the first one model, if a facilitator is modeling that vulnerability and, and that authenticity, it's, it's, I even felt within me just in this conversation, just imagining that if I were in a group like that, I mean, I could easily place myself in angsty teen years. Those are like my favorite movies. They resonate with me the most because the angsty teen movies, we can all relate to what it is to be just feeling like we're lost and we don't know our place in the world and we're, our body is changing so quickly. And when someone drops in that sincerely, it just, for me, it just opens up so much in me and and vulnerability is a, a tricky thing where it's like you were saying you'll you'll do almost anything to not do it and you might sab- self-sabotage in a lot of ways and then if mm-hmm. you allow yourself to go there it can be incredibly freeing and liberating and, and open up a whole bunch of possibility for you and, and transformation so it's it's beautiful that there are i think that's another thing that is missing in the therapeutic space is that it's at least from what I've seen, a lot of therapists model this kind of brick wall persona of like, I'm not a person. I don't have my own stuff. I'm just here for you to show me your stuff. And I have found it to be really healing. If I am in the space with someone who is willing to share who they are. Yeah, it's definitely a tricky line, right? Boundaries exist. Minors with mental health issues are extremely vulnerable. (laughs) You know, there's been multiple scandals actually in the last two years of like sexual assaults happening at inpatient programs. So it's it's like you know we need we need some kind of professional line, and it's so clear that the clinical distanced therapist doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So it's it's fun for me to navigate. It's definitely I think 
there's a lot to say about it, but I appreciate you bringing that up. And, you know, it's, it's in some ways really simple. Loneliness is a cause and consequence of mental illness. And by creating deep connection that's long-term and sustainable, teens get better. <laughs> Teen recovery is generally a very simple thing. They're not very complex <laughs> creatures. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's great. That's really great for us in a lot of ways. So, mm. yeah. I'm sure that, or maybe I'm not sure, but I just imagine if I were a facilitator in a space mm -hmm. like this, it would bring up a lot of my own stuff as well, right? Mm -hmm. There's just a lot of, I, when you, when you named the example of maybe a, a child or a teen throwing their chair at the wall, like I, it would just bring up so much stuff in me. And I'm, I'm wondering how, if it's practices or just just ways that you are able to stay centered so that that's it's not like bringing up your wounds in a way that you're not able to be there with them mm -hmm. yeah that's that's great i think there's um different practices for different types of people so i think there's two again i'm being reductionist and making big generalizations so take this all with a grain of salt but there's generally two different types of people who I see come in our doors interested in working with teenagers. One is someone who tends to have an extremely sensitive nervous system. Someone who's, I think, likely gonna be much more sensitive to other people than the general population. Um, those types of people tend to make really great therapists. They are going to be sensing all sorts of subtleties in the other and be able to get curious about that and ask questions about that in ways that are going to feel really magical and genius. <laughs> the problem with that is that person is also really sensitive. <laughs> so, you know, there's downsides. There's, there's kind of a cost to that sensitivity sometimes. And that means like, you know, burnout might be like a very real risk for you. Taking feedback might be really challenging. And there's lots of strengths we can give to people who kind of fall on that end of the spectrum. I think, you know, one thing I highly recommend is if you are that, like in that kind of sensitive space, getting really clear on, you know, your physical body practices. So what do you need to do to just move that energy through your system, usually on a more than once a day kind of basis. If you're seeing clients for five, six hours a day, it's, it's going to take a lot to be able to actually ground and hold space, getting your own therapy, <laughs> talking about the triggers that come up for you, and then resilience practices. So, you know, you don't wanna just be doing yoga, you wanna actually start doing res resilience training. So like hardcore, can I, you know, go on like a backpacking trip for four days with, you know, and starting to push those edges into resilience training. The other type of kind of employee or practitioner we get is more of an emergency responder type. That's where I fall. <laughs> I'm much more in that emergency responder type. Sensitivity is something I've had to really train. And I'm lucky that I've, you know, spent a decade in the coaching personal development <laughs> space <laughs> before working with teenagers. So I, I got a lot of practices around that. But that Emergency responder type tends to do really well in crisis management. It's like they're the rock in the storm. They're the, they're the person who's always there. I remember at the first inpatient program I worked at, I was like 
at the lowest tier, I was like the night staff who <laughs> didn't even get to work with kids, but you know, I'd be able to be called in at four in the morning and show up and be there and, you know, be perfectly calm in the complete chaos around and be smiling like, oh, this is my happy. This is this is where I'm thriving is at full, like full intensity. And I think in my personal life, that's been really damaging and that I can create a lot of chaos around me just so I feel safe and <laughs> good. <laughs> so having an outlet where it's like, no, no, there's there's controlled chaos over here is, is really comforting for me. But, you know, for those types of nervous systems, like typically what we have to start training on is like softening. And, mm-hmm. you know, really, I have to be really intentional about, okay, I'm going to be vulnerable with my partner today and ask for help mm-hmm. and like take a bath <laughs> and like really soften and, uh, you know, make sure I'm not brushing over something and I've had to do more uh, like sensitivity training. So you know, again, everyone kind of falls somewhere different on the spectrum. And I think, you know, for me, I had a lot come up when I first started working with teens. It was really, and I think that was your initial question anyway, but it's it's like, it's, it's really confronting watching kids go through things that you went through and heartbreaking and it can bring up all sorts of memories or things that you forgot about that are suddenly really in your face. And having just really strong shadow work practices, learning how to compartmentalize of like, just because this is coming up doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that's what matters right now. Like I'm, you know, being able to prioritize between your own internal sensation and the context within that internal sensation is coming up is an important skill. And one that funny enough is kind of Transcontextual that will help you in your relationships, that will help you at your job, <laughs> learning how to, you know, prioritize that way. But then again, just making sure you take time to actually, actually work it out. And, you know, I wish, I wish everyone in the world got an opportunity to, to work with struggling teens because I think it is just deeply healing and transformative and integrating parts in your life where you may have felt the most shame, I think is deeply empowering and uh, worthwhile. It's a really helpful distinction. I I don't think I've heard resilience training spoken about in that way. And as someone who tends towards the, maybe a lot more on the sensitive side myself, Mm -hmm. I have found personally practices like cold showers or strength training or or pushing my body to some sort of physical limit. It it actually does translate really well to emotionally being more resilient as well. And I I don't know if that gets enough airtime or Mm -hmm. is spoken about enough. And it's really interesting to hear that juxtaposed for sometimes I have to remind myself because I have such an aversion to conflict and crisis that some people, you're not the first person I've spoken to, but I, I think in coaching and in healing work, it, there's usually more, maybe I'm painting in, in too broad of strokes right now, but you probably tend more towards the really sensitive and feeling side. And there are, I, I know other people in my life who thrive in crisis and, and need to maybe train more on the sensitivity. So it's, it was really helpful for me to hear that. And 
Yeah, everyone is is different is really the the long and short of what you're saying. And that there's there's different ways that we can expand and grow and not not everyone has a the same approach to life. Yeah. Yeah, and and you can put yourself in situations. I I tend to do this. I tend to throw myself into situations where I'm really weak. So I have to build up strength mm-hmm. in in that area. So, you know, it's and I get some sort of sick pleasure out of doing that. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I, I'll, you know, working in an inpatient setting, I would purposely try to support our really sensitive people and like, okay, this teen boy who's six five is screaming at you and just punched a hole in a wall. Like for a small, you know, five foot something female, that can be really scary. But it's so empowering to learn how to build those resilience tools and know that, again, no matter what range of expression another being is presenting, that you can really be with that. And again, I I think it's not something anyone has to do, but if you ever wanted to learn how to do that, I think it's really worthwhile. And again, is a trans-contextual kind of skill set. So I'm glad that distinction was helpful. I know I I'm very biased. I love this work. So it's, <laughs> it's easy for me to find it interesting, but yeah. Yeah. Great. It was really helpful. And, and I appreciate one thing I appreciate about you is that you do throw yourself into, if you said, if you identify a weakness, you will throw yourself into it. And I yeah. wrote down in, in preparation for today, I wrote down because you're, you're certified in so many different modalities for the coaches who are listening, they're going to know what these modalities are. If you're not a coach, maybe you're not familiar, but I, I don't think that's mm-hmm. as important as, well, I'll, I'll ask the question and then you can, you can take it from there. Okay. I'm, I'm wondering, like you have an understanding of internal family systems, nonviolent communication, somatic processing, you mentioned Enneagram before, circling, motivational interviewing, authentic relating. There's so many different modalities. I'm, I'm wondering what has been, I'm sure they all shape the way that you see yourself, that you see people in general, but what are like, was there one of these trainings that has been really help, most helpful for you in understanding or fortifying an area that you were weaker? All of these are things that I'm familiar with. And as someone who's sensitive, mm-hmm. it's really just kind of helps me refine, maybe yeah. a skill, more of a skill set on my sensitivity. So I'm just interested yeah. how this showed up for you. Great. Yeah, there's a few layers to that question. And uh, I think the I think the first kind of disclaimer here is that all of those tools are maps and none of them are true. And I think that's been a key realization for me that really defines how I'm relating to each of those modalities. And that's something people should know about (laughs) is I'm not like, yeah, go learn any of those. (laughs) It really, I wouldn't recommend them unless, you know, you're in a space in your life where you want to, again, expand certain things or not, but none of them are required. No, nothing here is like, I think has like a pin on reality and each of them have been pivotal in shaping who I am and learning how to integrate the map, take it on, pretend it's real, and then realize 
it's not, and oh my God, it's not real, and ah, what do I think? And then let it go has been really important. (laughs) And I think I did that with as many maps as I needed to before I was able to not have to keep doing that anymore. But, you know, a main one for me was integral theory. So I did a lot of studying with Ken Wilber and then, you know, Stages International with Terry O'Fallon and Kim Barta. Their kind of map of adult development and human development, I found really supportive, just as far as figuring out like, what do we tend to grow into and why and what are the typical pain points as we do that? And I think that's helped me be less of a, pardon my language, but asshole to people in my life as I've grown. I'm like, oh, (laughs) okay, maybe there's room for everyone, actually. And (laughs) that's, that's really useful for me, even today of like, oh, it's probably something I need to integrate from this type of worldview or perspective. And that's something I I think is really valuable and is even like shaping a lot of the work we're doing now of like, I don't know how many stages nerds are listening to this, but, you know, therapists tend to have a very like green or 4.0 worldview. And we're working with very conservative, you know, Trump supporting like poor white people families that (laughs) are easily kind of demonized by the more liberal kind of pluralistic perspective. So how do you do that? How do you create a company that can, you know, encourage and welcome and, and also like include the, all of that and make that actually work. So that's a, that's a tool I, I lean on. And then circling was the other big one for me. I, I started circling I think circling was one of the things that kind of got me out of my new age, woke, like swampy stuck phase (laughs) where I, it kind of like stripped out all of this excess stuff and really just got down to the nuts and bolts of what does it mean to be seen and to see another person. And that was incredibly transformative for me. I um, was pretty involved in the integral center here in Boulder and, you know, was on there staff for different trainings. And again, I, I don't circle anymore. <laughs> it's not something I enjoy spending my time doing, but I'm so glad that I did that. And I think it just like deeply shaped my capacity to, to really let other people know me. Like, so for me, that would be if I want sensitivity training, like go do circling <laughs> was a big one. The embodiment stuff was also you know, again, really supportive for me. And that's kind of sensitivity training world. I went to massage school. I got a degree in somatic psychology. I got really into, you know, how do our bodies hold and store things and how like the tiniest shift and like feeling that tingling in my left foot, like while my, you know, shoulder is doing this thing, (laughs) like getting like really into that type of tracking for me, again, was super helpful kind of sensitivity work. But uh, yeah, that's, I think, you know, that and then I already touched on Zen meditation being another just big, big tool for me. But the rest of them, I I could probably speak to but well, I just have one quick clarifying question, then I want to talk about Zen meditation right. and circling, but you mentioned right. the a green 4.0 perspective around stages, and I'm just wondering if you could quickly name what that what that means. 
Great. Yeah, sorry. I, it's a, a danger of maps like this is they all have their own jargon. So it's, <laughs> it's hard to hard to get to in the weeds without tripping over that. But so the 4.0 or green kind of stage perspective is pointing to a, a type of worldview that's really classified by the emergence of postmodern thought. Another word to describe that worldview is pluralistic. So it's kind of an understanding that it's, it's the realization that truth might be subjective. I think Kant, the philosopher, is one of the first kind of postmodern thinkers, but he, he kind of realized, like, wait a second, it's not just the objective world out there. I'm looking at that world through all my own biases and my past and my unique experience. So I'm, you know, it, it's not just me and raw objective reality. It's me, all of my stuff, and then objective reality. So does that mean that everyone's perspective of reality is equal? And, you know, it's a beautiful kind of insight, I think, that the human species made. But it can result in some, like, funky problems, like... Um, <laughs> Like, ha like if you go into cultures that are, are really in that space, it can look like meetings that last for seven hours because everyone's perspective needs to be heard and no one's perspective is really right. And there's like a dissolving of hierarchy. There can be, you know, funny, like cultural things where heart and connection get really valued and then objective, like more concrete parts of reality get really ignored. So it can be really hard to actually like make money or accomplish anything <laughs> when you're in cultures like that. And then in the stages kind of worldview, they, they model like how the, those pitfalls of that perspective then lead into the next stage or the next kind of worldview insight. So yeah, I hope that that helped. Mm, yeah. I want to, I want to parrot it back in a way that I'm understanding to check and then, and then we'll get to right. and Zen meditation. So in a pluralistic okay. worldview, there's essentially the way that I'm internalizing it is that I am, mm -hmm. I'm aware that I am filtering the world a certain way and that is subjective. My reality is not objective reality and that mm -hmm. every person is walking around doing the same thing. So there's, yeah. we all, there's an awareness of, I have a subjective reality. You have a subjective reality. We all have a subjective reality and there is an objective reality and that can lead and that can lead to all sorts of challenges and, and ways of trying to see, like, how do you filter the world? How do I filter the world? How does this person filter the world? What can we all agree mm -hmm. on about the ways that we filter the world? And that can create kind of a tangled mess, but can also maybe there's an openness that it creates of, like, I'm not so rigid in that I'm right in the way that I'm seeing things. Yes. I think that's that was really well put. And again, I... I could talk about this forever. I, I really enjoy <laughs> this, these distinctions here. I think they're really important. But yeah, it's, you know, it leads to things like the realization of internal family systems of like, not only do I have this subjective reality, but it's complex and it's my subjective reality is fractaling into multiple realities. And, you know, this insight can lead to all sorts of just ways we, we start to deconstruct the world. I think that deconstruction is really like a key insight here. And um, it's really beautiful. And I, I don't think it's wrong. It's just partial. So 
And also, and if, if we circle this back to what you're doing around teen mental health, it, it seems like it would foster greater empathy for, I might not, I don't see the world the same way that this teen or person in front of me does, but I understand that they're, that they have a, a worldview that just like I do, and I, I seek to understand where they are coming from. Oh, definitely. I mean, a lot of like insight into coaching. I mean, the coaching world is, I love because it's so unregulated. It's kind of the opposite of mental health. It's like innovating so quickly of how do we learn how to be with other people? And there's, you know, it's like wild west psycho knots, like figuring out like, what do we, what do we do <laughs> with experience? And I don't think any of that would be super possible without this, this worldview or this insight. It's, you know, if everyone has their own subjective reality, what does that mean? That means I don't actually know you. And I have to check my assumptions of like, what is your world actually like? Like what, what does it feel like in that body, in that mind? And I, it opens up just like an eternal kind of intimacy that, that can happen that isn't there <laughs> otherwise. And then, and then again, <laughs> that doesn't mean this insights everything. Right. So there's, there's stages after it of like, great, we can have these beautiful insights and like we are a company and we have to make money. <laughs> and I'd love if every therapist who worked for me could own a house one day, <laughs> that'd be great. So, so how do we do this and like collect data, you know, and, honor people who don't have this perspective, who don't see me as the therapist, as someone with their own unique experience and is projecting all their crap on me because, you know, not everyone is going to be capable of doing this. So it's, yeah, that's, I think, uh, making object worldviews allows us to then learn how to relate to them and kind of pick and choose how how we can meet them yeah. when they arise. So, yeah. And it also seems like at its very best, it might lead to open-ended curiosity in, in as much as I don't, I can never fully understand the whole depth of you. And so I'm, I'm wide openly curious about who you are in any given moment. And that can foster really deep, rich connection too. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. And watching people kind of enter into that insight is usually I find just stunning. It's like their hearts and bodies and minds are like blossoming open into all this new sensation. And, you know, it, for me, I think it, that was really overwhelming. It was like, Oh, what is going on? Why am I feeling this? And I'm like, what do I do? And, um, <laughs> Whoa, it was, it was really cool. But again, I it was like, all right, I'm going to be taking trainings for the next five years so I can learn what to do with all of this sensation. And, you know, as beautiful as it is to just be open and receptive and reciprocal in it, I think I, I, I have biases against that. I, I really am. I enjoy, like, I think it's really easy to deconstruct or destroy something and be endlessly curious about it and pick it apart. I think it's really hard to build something that lasts for a long time. So I, I, that's been kind of a bias I've carried with me through my whole journey. So going through that phase and then being like, but how do I do anything and like have a career? <laughs> so I never really got, got over that. So I think that's 
anyway, that's that's a thing. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I would love to hear. Mm -hmm. There's three things, and you can go in any order you'd like before we move to the back end here. I, I want to hear about circling, how you would describe circling or an example. Right. Zen meditation and, and what that practice looks like for you. And if there's anything else that we haven't brought into the conversation around antelope or what you're doing in your work that you would like to bring into the conversation now. Okay, great. Yeah, we can start with circling. So yeah, circling is a present moment relational meditation practice. There's lots of different schools of circling, integral circling, circling Europe, and then there's some other ones floating around out there. I studied integral circling at the Integral Center. The Integral Center is closed. <laughs> it's no, it doesn't exist anymore. So I feel grateful that I got to be a part of it for its while it was around, but integral circling really draws upon integral theory, which I mentioned earlier and kind of gave birth to these stages that we've been talking about. But in essence, the practice is typically led by one facilitator and then a group of two to you know six participants. And then there's usually one person who's being circled. So the mission or the goal of the circle is to be with the person, the circlee, the, the person receiving the circle, wherever they are in whatever is happening for them. So it's a deeply present moment and a perfect place to practice some of those pluralistic skills. I have the kind of eternal now to get to intimately understand what it's like for this person to be them right now without trying to change or fix anything. It sounds simple. It, it usually ends up being really challenging to learn how to do it. I think for me, that's where I got the most value is realizing, oh my God, I want to change everyone all the time. <laughs> like, I am easily annoyed or like, it's really hard for me to be with this kind of place or this kind of experience. So it was like a developmental rocket ship in a sense of I got to be with a lot of different things and, you know, kind of quickly do my shadow work around it and then, you know, try it again and go back in again and, you know, screw it up and leave the present moment or, <laughs> you know, project on my circle E and then realize it and be like, oh, crap. And all right, going to go do my work and then show back up again. But when you start to get the hang of it, I think it, again, it's, it can be a really just, I, I think for me, it was the first time I had ever really felt okay in a group was encircling and that experience of okayness and that like internal space that that opened up for me, that I could be okay with other people, that insight or possibility was profound. And I think that's, that's really great. I, there's lots of criticisms about circling out there and they're all, I think, valid. <laughs> it's really easy to take just again, just like any tool, it's really easy to take the map and then weaponize it against people. And um, that's just, you know, that's kind of the beauty of 
the wild west unregulated self-development world is we can do that <laughs> we're not regulated it's awesome and you know be careful make sure you take care of yourself but uh yeah yeah for me that was that was really great and hopefully that gave some sort of description of circling i i think it's hard to explain until you've been in one it's one of those kind of ephemeral experiences but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah all right so the the two remaining i i know great. i'm throwing a lot at you Zen no, and uh, if there's anything else that you want to invite into the conversation just around what the work that you're doing at Antelope or anything else at all? Okay, yeah. So Zen meditation, I got into, I think it was the longest place my partner, my high school partner was able to stay sober at, was living at a Zen monastery. So after he, he was arrested, for it. It's actually kind of impressive in hindsight. He broke into an ambulance and stole all their medication, um, which is a terrible thing to like, I know I'm laughing. It's terrible. Like if that ambulance had to go help someone and they didn't have medication, that would, you know, that's awful, but very creative. I would never, never think to do that. But he broke into an ambulance, stole a bunch of pills, was arrested. He got out of jail after like six months and he was taken in by a Zen center down in Crestone that actually recently closed down Crestone, Colorado. It's now operating out of Boulder, but um, he lived there for two years and it worked. It worked for him. It was the longest he was sober, our whole relationship. He was happy, like the monastic lifestyle worked. And I was just like, what? How? Why is this working? What? <laughs> okay. I bet this would help me too. So I was a frequent <laughs> monastery visitor. I would spend, you know, a few weeks here or there dropping in and it was great. You know, we met it, we got up at 4am, you know, we were silent all day and it was like eight hour, you're sitting on the mat and they were <laughs> kind of classic Zen people. Like they gave me no instructions. There was no <laughs> like, hey, read this book or check this out. It's just like, oh, you're here. Yeah, just go sit. Just go sit there. <laughs> just, just sit with yourself and good luck doing that. And I think the part of me that does have that like maybe emergency responder nervous system responds really well to that kind of like drill sergeant approach of like, you have an issue, like shut up and deal with it. And yeah, it really, really helped. It really helped me learn how to relate to my mind. I had all sorts of kind of early state experiences and were really transformational for me and really shifted my worldview. There's a lot of kind of shadows of later experiences I would have of that feeling of like, all the dead wood burning off of just kind of metabolizing things I wasn't able to and learning how to trust myself. But I ended up living there for three months during one summer. And yeah, it was, it was beautiful. Zen is still a big part of my life and yeah, highly, highly recommend it. It was definitely, you know, threw me in the deep end a little bit. Like I probably could have used some actual therapy, I think before getting into an experience like that of like, huh, it would have been nice to talk to someone before, before just like deconstructing my reality that, that far down. But 
I, you know, it, it turned out okay. Worked out, worked all right for me. So that's that's what I got. And then I don't think there's anything else I have to say. I appreciate your last question, but I, um, yeah, I feel really, really seen by you. This was really sweet for me. I wish we had another hour so I could just ask you questions about your life. <laughs> Feels a little, little funny. This yeah. format. Uh, yeah. Happy to set that up for a different call. And mm-hmm. I, I still just have a, a couple more questions before okay. I let you go. They're more rapid fire in nature. You don't need to have All right. answers, but Great. Uh, some of my go-tos that I like to ask in most of my interviews, okay. what's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? Ooh, my walk to my office. It's really nice. Or my morning coffee. I think like, Heaven for me is like morning coffee on a porch, looking at dogs and snow. <laughs> so, yeah. What is something that folks would be surprised to learn about you? Huh. I have no clue. Hmm. I read like four books a week. Wow. I read like crazy. I love reading. Yeah, I'm a kind of, a, I'm a total nerd. But I don't know if that's a surprise. I don't know. Four books um, a week is really fucking impressive. I'll tell you that. I don't even know what it is, but it's a lot. Your yeah. your website has a bunch of different books that that really resonated with me. Quiet by Susan Cain is one. Yeah. I've never read The 12 Rules of Life. Those are popular. But I was surprised to see the coddling of the American mind on there. I'd be curious to hear oh. what... what resonated with you about that book oh that's such a good book it's so controversial too so i'm glad you're <laughs> bringing it up jonathan height is the author i actually have the book on my on my shelf here but he is a university teacher and he wrote this book the coddling of the american mind about the three great untruths he calls them and what classifies as an untruth is something that defies ancient wisdom and something that defies modern psychology. So like CBT. So the first great untruth is what doesn't kill me makes me weaker. And he goes into great detail about how these untruths are showing up in universities and in university culture right now and how that's affecting our young people. And he relates that to the rise of youth mental illness if what doesn't kill me makes me weaker, then that's a problem. <laughs> that means, you know, there's kind of a neurosis around, I need this to be really safe. And if it isn't safe, and if I know this space isn't controlled, I'm powerless to handle that. So that, you know, he he kind of breaks that down of, you know, again, like, how do we really create a balance around sensitivity and resilience what happens when they're in conflict? And if we over-index on sensitivity, what happens? And he he wrote a book about it. And I, I think for me, it's been really helpful when talking with parents, especially because I work with very conservative families who are really open to ideas like this. It kind of gives them language on what might be going on and why. And what do you do about that? Like, how do you, like, you know, we don't want to believe our kids' anxiety. 
and enforce it. That's the worst thing you can do for an anxious person is to tell them, yes, you should be anxious right now. You don't need to go to school because you're too fragile to do that. We actually want to create consensual and small challenges that help them build resilience. So he, again, he breaks down those untruths and why they're happening. And it has a very provocative title, but yeah, great book. Recommend it. Awesome. Well, he was on a recent Tim Ferriss episode that I listened to and I, um, I really dug it. So it, it caught my attention. What was, uh, what was one of the four books that you read this past week? Just to, to name another one to link to the show notes as maybe a, a resource or it could even just be one that you enjoyed. It doesn't need to be related to what we've spoken about. Yeah, that's great. The book I'm reading right now is Marie Kondo's book about the magic of tidying up. And really enjoying her distinctions. She is, she's pretty funny. Like her tone through the whole book is hysterical. But yeah, it's it's great. I'm excited to to clean this weekend and not not think about <laughs> uh, dying teenagers. But <laughs> that book is really good. And then I've been reading lots of like boring startup books. Like I just read Venture Deals by Brad Feld. He breaks down like startup like legal term sheets and how to not get your company like totally taken over if you accept venture-backed funding and that was really helpful (laughs) Uh, but yeah that's been most of my most of my books have been like that lately awesome yeah okay just a couple more questions uh I ask every episode, what's an organization or charity that you want to raise awareness for? And yours is T-W-L-O-H-A, to write love on her arms. Is there anything that, you know, what, what made you choose this organization and, and uh, what did they yeah. do? Very briefly. Great. So to write love on her arms is a organization that was started to support teens who are self-harming. Self-harm is really confusing. For most people who have never self-harmed, it's it's like a kind of a confusing act. And so they are really on a mission to destigmatize self-harm and make sure people who do self-harm have support. They have a scholarship fund that allows, I think they're at up to six teenagers per year that gets them treatment or puts them in recovery. It doesn't have to be for self-harm. It can be any mental illness or addiction. But I think they're they're doing a really great job of, you know, really showing up in the space and supporting supporting youth. Well, thank you for presenting them. It sounds like a wonderful organization. And the final question that I ask in every interview, Shelby, is what does it mean to you to live a meaningful life? Oh, man, that's a great question. I think there's two or three kind of ingredients for me that create an experience of meaning and like a foundation of meaning in my life. I think the first is for me, kind of the quick and dirty way for me to like have a meaningful life is just being of service to something larger than myself. So like answering questions like what would I die for? You know, what, what does that, what is that for me? And, you know, I've, I've dedicated my life to supporting the future generation. And that's, that like feeds me, that feeds that like meaning gap in my life. I think the second thing for me is I, I do have an active and 
rich kind of spiritual world and, you know, have somewhat like, like I have religious experiences frequently or experiences of like ecstasy and wholeness and just setting myself up and my life up so that I can, I am capable of (laughs) feeling intimately connected and communing with life. That really helps. And then I guess the final, final thing for me, it's, I can, I tend towards mania. I I can really speed up and go hard. So for me, it's a, a big part of having meaning is not like rushing through my world. And so can I slow down? Can I like really take time to be with my partner and not talk about work and like actually enjoy him and be with myself and Usually that looks like, you know, taking baths and listening to like monks chanting or something. And that, <laughs> that, that tends to work, work pretty well. But yeah, those are, that's the three, those are my three things um, that help me. Uh, beautiful answer. And this was a, a very lovely and fun conversation. I, I would imagine I, maybe this is, this is my projection and the way that I filter the world. But when I imagine talking about severe mental health challenges for teens, it, it can have a heaviness and, you know, like, Mike, you got to be really serious about this. And uh, I appreciate the the joy and the lightness and the, the laughter. There was a lot of laughter in the conversation that you're able to bring. I, I imagine that serves you really well in what could otherwise be too heavy of a, a field to be in. And I think another thing that I appreciate about you in, in this conversation is this kind of appreciation of being a renegade, like it's wild, wild west. All these models are a little bit, they can be helpful, but they're also, they also can be useless. And like, how do I integrate all of these things in a way that is supportive of the way that I map the world? There isn't really one way to map the world. And uh, it seems like it serves you really well as a person, as a practitioner, and uh, I'm honored that I got to be your first podcast interview. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you for interviewing me. You like popped my podcast cherry. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I feel, I, thank you. I feel really seen, seen by that. And yeah, mental health tends to be pretty serious for everyone who's not in mental health. Like if you ever go to an AA meeting, just I recommend if you've never been to one, you should try it because they tend to be hysterical. Like addicts are some of the funniest people I've ever met. And I'm a big fan of valuing humor. And I think it it helps <laughs> helps make the world a little more friendly. But yeah, thank you. Thanks for everything. And really glad to be here. Yeah, great note to end on. And to all the listeners, I hope that whenever you are listening, that you bring some laughter with you and you yeah. take good care and sending you lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.